So welcome back to week two of our overview of Ulrich Zwingli and the Swiss Reformation. So we're looking at, through this Sunday School class series, key figures of the Reformation. And we're about halfway through this Sunday School series. So last week we looked at Zwingli, uh, and we looked at his upbringing and his education. And we looked at his philosophical influence. And if you remember, I mentioned Zwingli was strongly humanistic which means that he had a philosophy of ad fontes, which means back to the sources. So because he studied, because of that, he studied and he taught himself Greek. Um, I also mentioned that he read and read the church fathers, as many of the reformers did, they read and read the church fathers. But he really favored and was influenced by Erasmus. So Erasmus was about 20 years older than Ulrich, though uh, Zwingli died before Erasmus, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, so we follow Zwingli's ministry from uh, Glarus to Eisendellen to Zurich and Switzerland, which is where his reformation took place. Um, I also talked about Zwingli's controversy with the radical Anabaptists um, a little bit, and uh, we uh, went from there to uh, sort of mention this um, Marburg colloquy where you have uh, Zwingli and Luther meeting for the first and only time in person to uh, discuss and debate the presence of Christ in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that pretty much catches us up to this week. So we'll continue from there, just trekking um, Ulrich and the Swiss Reformation. Okay, so last week I mentioned Zwingli's 67 conclusions which played a role in the Swiss Reformation, or at least came as a result of Zwingli being called to give an account for this reform he was starting. So most of us have heard of Luther's 95 theses, but I'm gonna talk a little bit about Zwingli's 67 conclusions, right? So <clears throat> we didn't talk about them um, last week, so, or so much, so I wanted to talk a little more this week about them. So Zwingli's uh, view in connection with uh, Luther, the Lutheran Reformation in Germany started to be seen as a problem in the Swiss regions. So not only in the region of Zurich where Zwingli was ministering, but um, in, in the Swiss region as a whole. So this reformation that started in Zurich began to spread throughout the whole of the Swiss region. So there was trouble with Zwingli and his Reformation theology. Um, so Zwingli, wanting to sort of discuss this, actually proposed to the government and the civil council a public disputation that he felt would sort of settle these controversies and these concerns based off of the scripture, the sole scripture alone. So actually Zwingli put forth this idea and said, okay, let's meet to talk about these things and I want to sort of show you from scripture where I'm getting my thoughts from concerning um, his theology and his philosophy, which we see as his reform in Switzerland. So in preparation for that meeting, out of that came Zwingli's 67 conclusions, or articles, they can be called. So <clears throat> according to Philip Chaff, this was actually the first public statement of the reformed faith, Zwingli's 67 conclusions. <clears throat> That's Zwingli, maybe, I don't know. I, I like that picture for some reason, I don't know. It just, it feels dark and I like that, I don't know why. But, um, <laughs> so this is uh, uh, 
hopefully it's the right picture of Zwingli's 67 conclusions. Um, okay, so Zwingli, in preparation for that disputation, uh, came up with these 67 conclusions. And again, Philip Schaff said these were the first public statement of the Reformed faith. Uh, but they weren't seen as having the same authority um, to speak for the Protestant Reformation. And I was actually talking to Ron about this yesterday. He, he mentioned that um, there were 50 sort of uh, confessions or statements within the first 50 years of the Reformation. And I was like, wow. And I, I mean, I didn't know that. I only know about a, a few of them. But Zwingli's was one of those. Um, but again, it wasn't accepted as sort of uh, authoritative, not as in scripture is authoritative, but authoritative as a confession to speak for the um, Protestant Reformation. So they were sort of, uh, they were helpful, they were used by some churches, but they were replaced later by more mature and theologically thorough confessions, okay? So Zwingli's 67 conclusions actually resemble the 95 Theses in some areas, um, as Luther dealt with the issue of indulgences though he wrote about six years before Zwingli's conclusions. So the 95 Theses about six years before the 67 conclusions. But these conclusions, they did hold some weight in Protestantism and they actually cover a lot of different topics. They talk about Christ as the only savior and mediator. Um, they teach the supremacy of the word of God as the only rule of faith. They reject and attack the uh, primacy of the Pope uh, they attack the, the mass, the prayers of the saints, uh, the merit of human works, uh, a bunch of different fasts, um, pilgrimages, uh, celibacy, which we sort of talked about last week, and purgatory. And basically, he said that they all were unscriptural commands of men. All right, so I want to read a few of these conclusions. Um, the first one said this. All who say that the gospel is nothing without the approbation of the church err and cast reproach upon God. Number two, he says this, the church or the sum of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of God, has made known to us the will of his heavenly father and redeemed us by his innocence from eternal death and reconciled us to God, which we would agree with. Number three, it says, therefore, Christ is the only way to salvation to all who were, who are, and who shall be. Okay? So number four, 63 more to go. I'm not going to read all of them. <laughs> 17, we'll, we'll skip to 17. Um, Christ is the only eternal high priest, he said. Um, those who uh, repent, or sorry, those who pretend to be high priests resist, yea, set aside the honor and dignity of Christ. So obviously he's addressing the uh, papacy. Uh, 66 says all scriptural, all spiritual superiors should repent without delay and set up the cross of Christ alone or they shall perish. The ax is laid at the root. So he was not uh, playing games when he was writing these 67 conclusions. He had something in mind that he wanted to address in his reformation. So those are just a few, but it might be fun to look at the uh, Luther's 95 Theses and uh, Zwingli's 67 conclusions and compare them to one another. The ways in which they're different or similar might be interesting to you. Okay, <clears throat> so that's the 67 conclusions. Now I want to move um, from that into 
the abolition of the Roman Catholic worship. The abolition of the Roman Catholic worship. This is a church in uh, Zurich where, um, Lut where um, Zwingli ministered for a little bit. It's a beautiful uh, cathedral there. Okay, so another aspect of Zwingli's reform in Switzerland dealt with the public worship and liturgy. And you see this uh, addressed in many of the reformers, this idea of a breaking away from uh, Roman worship and uh, the Reformation affecting public worship and the liturgy, okay? And I really like reading through this aspect of Zwingli's reform. Um, although I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of it uh, concerning public worship and the liturgy, um, I really enjoy sort of peeking through the windows of these men's churches as reform was happening. I sort of get to see what did this look like for your local congregation, and I just, I, I really enjoy that. So there was this idea of the abolition of the old order of worship for uh, bringing in a new order in worship. So this idea was radical, but it follows suit with the theological and philosophical changes within the Swiss Reformation. Um, and as I said before, as Wingley began uh, to reform, it wasn't just his congregation, but it started to spread through all of Zurich and uh, Switzerland. So what did that look like? This is interesting. Um, the authorities of church and state at that time brought with them architects, masons, and carpenters. And the churches in Zurich were sort of um, stripped of altars, candles, uh, ornaments, murals destroyed, and they were whitewashed so that all that was left was just sort of a bare building. So they went with the authorities and stripped everything out of these churches. And it was, it's interesting because it's different than how we would understand it now. There was this idea of church and state, the, the church, uh, the magistrate with the civil uh, authorities. There was almost this sort of one power. Um, it's very different now, so this sounds really strange to us that they were going and wipe all this stuff out of these churches, but that was just the reality at that time. So they left these buildings, basically simple buildings, um, which Zwingli would say was to be filled with worshiping congregants, a worshiping congregation. So the pictures were broken and burnt, some um, given to people who claimed them. The bones uh, of saints were buried. Uh, they even took the organs out of the church. They took all the organs out. So those who love organs, they had to go. They took it all out. Um, pretty much everything. Um, and the Latin singing of the choir was abolished. So they did away with the Latin singing, singing in Latin, not a tongue that's familiar or dialect that's familiar to those within the congregation. So that was done away with. So they just cleaned these churches. Um, okay, so back to Zwingli's theological view that uh, he said, Basically, if there wasn't any explicit scriptural proof that something should be happening within uh, corporate worship, he, he would say, do away with it. Um, that was sort of where he was in his, his theology. Um, but although the organ was tossed and the Latin choir singing was done away with, afterwards it was to be replaced by congregational singing of psalms and hymns in the language of the Zurich people. So... I would amen that, say that that's good. 
So as we sing some hymns and we sing some psalms, we actually sing along with those who sung in Zurich um, during the Reformation. And I really love that, that as we sing the hymns, as we sing these songs of old, we sing with our brothers and sisters um, in the same way. And that just really sticks out to me. Bullinger, who labored with Zwingli in the Swiss Reformation, he said this, he said it took 13 days, and within that time, all the churches of the city were cleared. Costly works of paintings and sculpture, especially a beautiful table and water church, were destroyed. And this is what he said. He said, the superstitious lamented, but the true believers rejoiced, and it was a great and joyous worship of God. The superstitious lamented, but the true believer rejoiced, and it was a great and joyous worship to God. That's not to say that you're not a believer if you don't like to sing hymns, but uh, he's making a point here that there was much within the uh, corporate worship context that was superstitious. It was really uh, pagan. It was um, idolatrous, right? So that's what they're, they're addressing. They saw all worship of images and relics as a type of idolatry. They mainly opposed the paganism and popery or the paganism of popery or the papal system. And it's interesting because Luther, on the other hand, attacked legalistic Judaism and he was actually okay with pictures and worship. So Luther saw them as a help to devotion. Right? So there's a, a difference there between their ideas of images and corporate worship. So. <clears throat> Um, now, Zwingli didn't oppose uh, images in and of themselves. So if you um, sang a beautiful song or you played an instrument, you say, okay, Zwingli, listen. And then you, ah, and you sing and you say, Zwingli, listen. And you play a beautiful note and you say, Zwingli, look, look at this image. He's not going to say, that's good, that's good, but that you got to do away with. He would say within the corporate worship context, there was no place for images, right? So he wasn't, he was against images within corporate worship. Matter of fact, he wrote about this um, in a letter to a man named Valentin Kumpar in 1525. And he said, the controversy is not about images which do not offend the faith and the honor of God, but about idols to which divine honors are paid where there is no danger of idolatry, the images may remain, he said. But idols should not be tolerated. All of the papists tell us, listen to this. He says, all of the papists tell us, images are the books of the unlearned. But he says, where has God commanded that we learn from such books? So essentially, his thought was that the absence of images in churches would tend to increase a hunger for the word of God. So he said, do away with that. Um, let people's affections be stirred by, and by the word unto God. We don't need the help of images, right, within the corporate worship context. And then Luther would have another view on that, okay? So in, any thoughts on that before we jump into... Uh, What's that? Sounds like, like symbology, like a different language. Like, don't believe in language. Yeah, well, yeah, it would be dealing specifically with, like, 
images, but those images within that corporate worship context, he would say, it is a sort of idolatry. It's, a, it, it's an um, idolizing of relics and symbols and all those things within the local church. Right, 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 yeah. Right, and, and, and there's a context there. It's not just uh, images in general. His context is dealing with the idolatry within the Roman Catholic Church. So in, in his view, as he's uh, sort of pulling away from these things and trying to reform, the context is these have been used as idols um, and sort of set up in the place of God. So he's coming at really, uh, is Christ uh, sufficient uh, for these things or do we need these, these images? Again, some would have different views, but we have to keep Zwingli in his context to understand him rightly. Okay, how much time do we have? All right, I gotta get going. So we're gonna get to now transition to Luther and Zwingli, fight night, although it wasn't really that. So the Lord's Supper controversy, the Marburg Colloquy. Um, I think I have a picture of this. Yes, there you go. Can, can y'all see that? Luther's like, no. I'm not going to shake your hand, which I think actually happened. But um, okay, context. So we're going to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper controversy between Zwingli and Luther at, Marburg, at the Marburg Colloquy. So this controversy was about the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And it actually lasted from 1524 to 1529, but it came to a head or was sort of concluded officially in 1529 at the Marburg Colloquy. So does anybody know just uh, generally what the Marburg Colloquy was or what happened there? The Marburg Colloquy, if I'm saying that right, I could be saying it wrong, but uh, it's C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-Y, Colloquy. So what was that? What was this meeting of Luther and uh, Zwingli? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he would say it's yeah. uh, memorial. He would say it's symbolic. He would say it's analogy. It's an analogy. This. This is my body. This is my blood. So that was the context of this uh, discussion. Now there were more than they talked about more than that, but that's that's an area where they would disagree. Okay, so let me give a little more of the context here. So this was really an attempt to bring unity in the reformed movement. And uh, so it was assembled in 1529. So the two reformers, Zwingli and Luther, met face to face along with Martin Bucer, Philip Melanchthon, and uh, Justice Jonas and other Protestant reformers. So they actually agreed in principle on 14 of 15 articles that they met to discuss. 
All right, so they were looking at uh, 15 articles, and the Lord's Supper was one of them, uh, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So uh, they actually agreed to 14 of those 15, uh, but these articles address things like this. Uh, the church-state relationship, infant baptism, the historical uh, continuity of the church, and so on. Um, I'm going to read just a, a couple of these, these articles that they met to talk about. So Article 5 says... We believe that we are saved from this sin and all other sin and eternal death if we believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Without this faith, no deed, good or bad, uh, social justice or social status, sorry, or religious order can free us from our sin. So they would agree on that. Um, Article 8, which they agreed on, said, we believe, that the Holy, we believe that the Holy Spirit, to speak properly, does not give anyone such faith or this gift without their having heard sermons or the word of gospel of the gospel of Christ. Rather, it works through and with such oral proclamation and creates faith where, where and whom it wishes. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, they would agree on that. But the 15th article was the one that Luther and Zwingli could not agree on. This is what that article said. On the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, 15th article. Regarding the Lord's Supper of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, we believe and hold that one should practice the use of both species or elements of bread and wine as Christ himself did and that the sacrament at the altar is a sacrament of the true body and blood of Jesus Christ and the spiritual enjoyment of this very body and blood um, is proper and necessary for every Christian. Furthermore, that the practice of the sacrament is given and ordered by God the Almighty like, uh, Almighty, like the word so that our weak conscience might be moved to faith through the Holy Spirit. This is where you see the shift in that article. It says this, and although we have not been able to agree at this time whether the true body and blood of Christ are corporally present in the bread and wine of communion, each party should display towards the other Christian love as far as each respective conscience allows. And both should persistently ask God the Almighty for guidance so that through his spirit, he might bring us to a proper understanding. Amen. They ended. So. The question you're probably wondering, which I was wondering, is what were their differences regarding the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? What were the differences between Zwingli and Luther? So I'm going to cover this a little bit um, because it can get very technical and you can read more on it later. I just want to sort of do an overview of those differences. All right, so Luther. <clears throat> so in, in his confession concerning Christ's Supper, Martin Luther laid out his explanation of the doctrine of communion. For Luther, the supper was understood as a real Christological presence of Christ, body and blood, that is in, with and under the visible elements of bread and wine. Luther argued for this understanding of a real physical presence of Christ in the supper, but he put a special emphasis on the words of Christ at, at the Last Supper where he said, this is my body and this is my blood in relation to blood and wine. Now, I know that sounds very similar to the Roman Catholic doctrine of 
full transubstantiation, so to speak, um, where communion is in substance the body and blood masked as bread and wine. So there's a difference here. Um, so that basically what it is, the, uh, the Roman Catholic view of trans transubstantiation would say in substance, uh, the bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ, uh, sort of masked as blood, as bread and wine. So this is gonna get a little technical, but it's important and helpful for us to understand the distinction between Luther and Rome and Luther and Zwingli, right? So Luther would say, and I'm quoting from uh, Luther's works on the Lord's Supper, he would say, the simultaneous coexistence or conjunction of the two substances is not a local inclusion of one substance in the other. Everybody get that? <laughs> the simultaneous coexistence or conjunction of the two substances is not a local inclusion of one substance in the other. In other words, he didn't believe that the body of Christ replaced um, the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. He would go on to say, nor is it a mixture or fusing together of the two substances into one. So, like the hypostatic union? Oh, so, listen to what he says on that. So for Luther, it was a sacramental, supernatural, incomprehensible, mysterious union. He would say the earthly elements remain unchanged and distinct in their substance and power. So that's distinct from the Roman Catholic view, but they become the divinely appointed media for communicating the heavenly substance of the body and blood of Christ. So uh, this was also distinct from Zwingli that held the position that the Lord's Supper is mainly a memorial or commemoration of Christ's death. Uh, uh, Zwingli would say it was a symbolic remembrance. Um, he would view the sacraments as a sign and seal of grace already received rather than as a means of grace to be received. Okay? So, Yes, you can read, uh, <laughs> especially Luther. He has a he has a lot in his in his writings on the Lord's Supper and Zwingli too. So again, I won't be able to go into all of their thought, their theological views on this, but you can go and read that later. There's a lot there for you to read. Okay, so that's Luther. That helps Zwingli now. So Zwingli's understanding was uh, a little easier to to understand. Um, but Zwingli's, uh, his, his uh, interpretation or his understanding was less complex, although we wouldn't agree with that either. So it's important to remember here in Zwingli's interpretation, this is sort of foundation, foundational to his understanding of the Lord's Supper. Um, he says, he, he's making a distinction between the thing, the sign and the signifier. Uh, the sign and what's signified. So that's foundational to his understanding. Zwingli would say that Christ's language in John 6 would show that belief in his work, specifically the suffering, death, and resurrection, is in the context um, and foundational to any language concerning the body and blood of Christ. So understanding the context of John 6 and the way that it's used when it says, this is my body, this is my blood, he would say that sets the tone for any, uh, any way that we understand that concerning the Lord's Supper. 
So for Zwingli, Christologically, he emphasizes Christ being in heaven and body and the centrality of his spiritual presence on earth. So Zwingli can't conceive of a body that can be both local and omnipresent. Zwingli felt like Luther's interpretation of this is my body was too literalistic, right? So he's seeing it as a commemoration, as a memorial. He's saying Christ can't be there and here. You're taking that too literally, right? So he's trying to make a distinction there. Again, Zwingli would view the Lord's Supper as a solemn commemoration of the atoning death of Christ according to his command, do this in remembrance of me and the words of Paul, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's Supper until he comes. So Zwingli emphasized the simple character of the institution as a gift of God to man in opposition to the Roman mass who saw it as a work or an offering that man makes to God. Okay, and so he disagreed with Luther that there was any real presence of Christ present in the Lord's Supper, but he actually compares the sacrament of Christ uh, to a wedding ring that seals the marriage union between Christ and the believer. He denied the corporal or physical presence because Christ ascended to heaven and because a body cannot be present in more than one place at one time. Also, because he would say, the two substances cannot occupy the same space at the same time. But he admitted to a spiritual presence. So that's a lot, I know. <laughs> but um, I, I want to sort of give us uh, an idea of the dialogue that was happening at the Marburg Colloquy regarding the Lord's Supper. So is this kind of all stemming off of the time? When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, it's basically defining is what they're trying to do. Right. So what is the presence of Christ in the Eucharist? What is the, what is, the is? Is, it a, is? Is he here? Is he there? Is he both places at the same time? If he's speaking of his body, this is my body, this is my blood, what is the my body, this is my body, this is my blood. Very good way to put it, yes. Dave. One of the problems that you have is that at the time Christ said that, there was a certain crystal platonism that was going on. Huh. That was yeah. the philosophy of yeah. the day. Yeah. And then as both the church time and philosophy matured, right. you ended up with um, Aquinas in particular who brought their Estonian philosophy right. back into play. And that's where substance and accidents came with yeah. And that has to do with the fundamental. This is what Roger said about the fundamental nature of what is. Yeah. What What does it mean? What's the substance of something? What is the accident of something? Yeah. And the church was arguing about this yeah. for 200 years before this became an issue. So right. that whole backdrop of that philosophy was behind this as well. Right. And this his line of thinking here. Um, even um, Zwingli, uh, very uh, influenced by Erasmus who was, had his influences, who had their influence. So there's a, there, you can trace sort of an origin uh, throughout the thinking on these issues, on, on both ends, but throughout the thinking on these issues. Okay, Larry, and then we'll go. Right, right, right. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. The context of it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even uh, today, uh, there's there's disagreement on uh, the is, and not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but even in uh, some Protestant churches. But let, let me go on on this, so uh, maybe to bring a little more clarification, if I haven't just muddied the waters already. Um, okay, so they admitted his, uh, Zwingli admitted his spiritual presence uh, for Christ is eternally God, and his death forever. Um, and so they agreed on the, uh, how the efficaciousness or how effective the, the, the body of Christ was or the blood of Christ was for, for salvation. Um, but they disagreed on whether it was corporal in the Lord's Supper. Okay, so Zwingli argued that the physical Christ um, remained in heaven and that any portion of Christ that was involved in the Lord's Supper was necessarily that which can be omnipresent namely the spiritual portion of Christ's being. As with Luther, Zwingli's main disagreement was a philosophical difference in the understanding of the possible locations and efficacy of Christ's body. All right? So I hope that helped. Um, Oh, and Luther also believed that everyone should take the Lord's Supper. So he would say um, he believed in, quote, all um, the, the oral mandication or eating or drinking of both substances by all communicants, unworthy and unbelieving, as well as worthy and believing, with sort of two different results. So if you want to know more on that, again, you guys can go and read on that. Um, and that was opposed to Zwingli, who believed that only believers should take the Lord's Supper. So there were basically two main issues. Uh, the mode of Christ's presence, whether it was physical or spiritual, how is he there? What, how, how is he there presently? Is it physical or is it spiritual? And the organ of receiving the body, is it by mouth or by faith? So the receiving by mouth or by faith answers who should receive it, believing or unbelieving. Right? So that third sort of comes off of the second. Okay, so when the two meet face to face at Marburg, which was the only time they met in person, they ended up agreeing on 14 of those 15 articles. And even on that 15th article, they only agreed on the bare essentials concerning the Lord's Supper. And what were those bare essentials? Again, they agreed on the spiritual presence and effectiveness of Christ's body and blood, but they disagreed on the physical presence and on who should take or be given the Lord's Supper, whether all or only believers, all right? So, again, I hope that's helpful. Um, It said that, I'll go back here. It said that Zwingli showed a marked ability as a debater and superior courtesy and liberality as a gentleman. Luther received the impression that Zwingli was, he says, a very good man, yet of a different spirit. (laughs) I love Luther. He writes funny stuff. And so he refused to accept this hand of fellowship offered to him with tears. So Philip Schaff said, the two men were differently constituted, differently educated, differently situated, differently equipped, 
each of his own people and country, and yet the result of their labors, as history proved, are substantially the same. Okay? So that dealing with the Lord's Supper on the Mar- Marburg Colloquy. I know that was a lot, but it's important. And so there you have it. The uh, not receiving of the right hand of fellowship. Not the right hand of fellowship. That's like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what else? The, the, the hand of fellowship. I, I did that when I was reading through this, and I was like, don't say that when you teach it. And I said it anyway. Anyway, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay, so um, on to Zwingli's Reformation Theology. That's where we're going next. Okay, Zwingli's Reformation Theology. How does Zwingli's theology, um, why do we say it was a reform? Why do we say it was uh, not in line with uh, the Roman Catholic view? What was the distinction? His Reformation theology. So two doctrines were foundational to Zwingli's Reformation theology. Uh, The supremacy of scriptures and the sovereignty of God and his providence um, and his electing grace. G.W. Bromley said that Zwingli placed tremendous stress upon divine sovereignty in his teaching. The unifying factor of Zwingli's theology was the overwhelming emphasis upon divine sovereignty. So he found it necessary both to include the fall of man in the providential ordering of the universe and also assert a rigid predestination both in life and perdition. Life and death, I think he believed uh, in uh, maybe double predestination. Um, Bromley said he had a fine sense of the fact that God's providence must in some way include all events within the sphere of operation. Zwingli himself said, as it belongs to the legislator or prince to dispose according to what is right and good, so it belongs to the sovereign of the universe to dispose according to his own nature and and that is his goodness. Okay, Um, man's depravity. So we're looking at uh, Zwingli's uh, Reformation theology. Man's depravity. What did he believe about man's sinfulness? Zwingli actually focused more on the um, uh, consequences or or the the manifestation of man's sinfulness rather than its causes. This is what I mean. Zwingli sometimes talked about man's uh, humanity's sin problem as a disease contracted from Adam. He says, original sin is really therefore a sickness and a state. It's a sickness because just as Adam fell through self-love, so do we. It is a state because just as he became a slave and subject to death, so are we born as slaves and children of wrath and subject to death. At other times, he spoke of people as dead in sin, He wrote, they who have been born of one dead are themselves dead. The dead Adam could not regenerate one free from death. The death which consists of sin is the parent of physical death. And sin is a a spiritual death which causes people to die physically. So this uh, sounds common to us, but again, in this context, this was was not common. Uh, Zwingli wasn't saying anything novel necessarily theologically, but in his context, it was something that was distinct and set him aside as a problem um, for Rome in his Reformation theology. Okay, 
Moving on to sovereign election. I'm just gonna hit these quick before we close out. Sovereign election. Zwingli also taught the unconditional predestination of God and salvation. Philip Chaff again said that he saw God's sovereign election as the true source of salvation. Zwingli traced salvation exclusively to the sovereign grace of God. Um, in short, Zwingli plainly taught that God's election is determinative and he asserted God's freedom to choose those who would be his, he would be his people in time and eternity. So Zwingli defined election as, in quote, the free disposition of God's people concerning those who are to be saved. Okay, that leads us into divine atonement. One last point here. Um, Zwingli actually didn't have much to say about the extent of Christ's atonement, but he did say in one place in his writings that sovereign election is inseparable from the death of Christ, which we would agree with. He wrote, election belongs to his goodness to have chosen whom he will, and it belongs to his justice to adopt his elect and as his children to bind them to himself through his son, whom he gave as a sacrifice to render satisfaction to divine justice for us. So he would, he would affirm that the death of Christ was intended to save those who had been chosen by God. He would affirm election. Again, nothing new theologically, but very unique in the context of his reformation. <clears throat> so in closing, that picture looks morbid, but I'm gonna explain it. Um, it's interesting that Zwingli, in closing, who earlier opposed the practice of using mercenaries in war, which we talked about last week, actually died at war on the battlefield in 1531. So within the conflict between Protestants and Catholics in 1531, a war broke out. And the city of Zurich went to battle to defend itself against invading Catholic districts or regions who were armed for war. So you have these Catholic um, uh, districts coming from the south to invade uh, Zurich, um, the, or the Protestants within Zurich. So Zwingli was with the Zurich army as a field chaplain, which he served, I said he served as a field chaplain before for a couple of years. And it was during that time that he served as a field chaplain that he started seeing young Swiss soldiers who were sold to be protection uh, and into war. He saw them die, which burdened him, which, started, which caused him to write against using young Swiss soldiers as uh, protection in men of war. Uh, but it's ironic that he um, does, he ends up as a chaplain again in this war in 1531. Um, and he was basically suited with armor, and he had a battle axe in one hand, it says, and a Bible in the other. And he's serving as a chaplain. And he was uh, actually, during that time, wounded in October 11, 1531. And when soldiers saw him wounded, uh, they basically came and killed him. And his, uh, when he was killed, he was treated very disgracefully. It was supposed to be a mockery of him. I don't know if he was actually under a tree or not, but um, so he's there wounded and they come and they see him wounded, they kill him and they actually um, quarter his body and then cut his, those quarters into pieces and then they burn them and then they mix them with dung and they scatter them abroad. So it was supposed to be a form of mockery, right? Um, 
So just, again, he is uh, a horrible way to, to, to treat a body, but it, it was supposed to mock him. Um, today, uh, the statue of Zwingli stands tall at, um, in front of Water Church in Zurich, and it's supposed to be sort of this statue of him with his sword and his Bible, um, a picture of his, um, his uh, strength and resolute in his reform in Switzerland. Um, through this Zurich ministry, the, although his uh, ministry in Zurich and Switzerland was short, I mentioned before it's about 12 years. He didn't have decades and decades of reform like Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, and others. It only lasted about 12 years, but he accomplished a lot. So through his stand for the truthfulness of the word of God, uh, he reformed the church in Zurich and many in Zurich and led the way for other reformers to follow. One of those reformers being Heinrich Bullinger, which Pastor Ron will talk about next week. Um, we are also indebted to Ulrich Zwingli. Um, and so let's give God thanks for his grace to uh, and through him, because we do, even as Reformed Baptists, particular Baptists, we, in a sense, stand and align, and we are beneficiaries of the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation, the German Reformation, the Swiss Reformation. Um, we, we are beneficiaries. We, because even denominationally, even someone who is non-denominational has benefited from the Reformation. Um, but anyway, um, so let's Give God thanks for his grace through uh, Zurich. And again, you guys can read a lot more on, uh, on this man and his reformation. There's, there's a lot more to cover. I wasn't able to cover everything. But again, we're just trying to keep him in the context as we look at the reformation, the Protestant reformation. Okay.